Welcome to Rock Talk, the podcast where a couple of jabronis get to know the movie roles of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I'm Jordan Rummel, joined as always by my good friend and co-host Charlie Guile. Charlie, how you doing? Doing really well. You know, uh, we have some snow here in the D.C. area. It's really made traveling a pain, but we made sure that no matter what happened, we were going to bring you this podcast about this movie because it's very important. Yes, Charlie, how lucky for you uh, to get to warm the cockles of your heart during these snowy days with a movie endorsed by our good friends over at Nerdy Things Podcast, the 2005 comedy crime maybe musical Dwayne Johnson film Be Cool. Uh, But before that, of course, it's time for our Rock News of the Week. Mazel, that's fantastic news! And the first piece of rock news that we have this week is Dwayne Johnson on his Instagram announced a brand new contest in association with the Rampage movie that comes out on April 13th. Uh, Jordan, what do you think about this? The whole thing is you have to download their VR app that uses your camera to sort of superimpose these creatures from Rampage in your everyday life. So they want you to submit a video you know, explaining why you'd be the best person to join Dwayne Johnson on his international press tour. And they're choosing like eight winners from four countries. Uh, Have you downloaded the app? Have you given it a run? I have looked at the app. Um, I, I think it's a great contest idea. I think it's fun. It's different. It's very digital, but I don't know, man, like the, whatever animator that they hired, like, yeah, (laughs) I don't, I think it it looks looks real uh, amateurish and weird. Like there are way better VR apps out there, and I don't think anyone is going to choose to to do this one instead of any of the other ones. But like, it looks like it came from a PlayStation One game. <laughs> yeah, it's really pixelated, and the animation is weird and blurry. But it seems to work all right. I don't know if you and I are going to enter that contest or or not. Uh, only a couple winners from the United States, so I, I wouldn't put our chances at being very high. The uh, if oh, go ahead. if it weren't for the fact that we are his favorite podcast that he listens to every single week, clearly, clearly, because you know he's constantly <laughs> tweeting at us. He <laughs> lets us know he's offered us jobs with Seven Bucks Productions. <laughs> uh, no, but it's kind of a cool idea. But anyway, so we'll we'll keep an eye out for that when he announces the winners. Second up, this movie Red Notice, future Dwayne Johnson movie, gets a release date June twelfth, twenty twenty. We've heard a little bit about this most recently after, I think, was it Universal won a bidding war to get to produce this movie? Uh, but anyway, so we have a, we have a release date. Um, I love it. Uh, if, if for no other reason than the fact that rock talk will never die because <laughs> Wayne Johnson makes movies every single year. Like, you know, th- these are companies banking on the fact that he'll still be at this level of superstardom two years from now. I yeah. love it. Yeah, I think that's a safe bet. It's by the same people that made Skyscraper and Central Intelligence, the same uh, writer and director. Yeah, this sounds to me like Fast and Furious meets Ocean's 12, and I'm here for it. <laughs> and the and the last one is straight out of a Seinfeld episode here. Dwayne Johnson bought his dad a Cadillac after old Rocky Johnson had some hip surgery, needed a bigger car. Dwayne Johnson bought the Cadillac for him, put it on Instagram. Everyone's fawning over him. Son of the year. Am I right? 
I'd imagine that Dwayne Johnson has bought plenty of things for his dad in the past, uh, but this one, front and center. Nice car. This is why people love Dwayne Johnson. Good guy doing good guy things. I love it. And yeah. the car is dope. Well, yeah, it was you know, pretty cool. His dad had uh, hip replacement surgery. So you could say, brand new hip, brand new whip. Am I right? Ooh. Wow. End the podcast right there. <laughs> Should have really uh, backloaded this one, ending with the news. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's all we have this week for Dwayne Johnson News. Thank you, Charlie, which means it's time for us to get going to work. That has got to go to work. Today, as we said, we are taking a look at 2005's PG-13 crime comedy, sometimes musical, Be Cool. It is the winner of the worst film of 2005 Austin Film Awards, tying with Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, um, directed by F. Gary Gray, uh, who you might know as the director of oh some movies called The Fate of the Furious, straight out of Compton and The Italian Job. Charlie, does that surprise you, just hearing that off the bat without getting into our, our movie discussion yet? Uh, is that a surprising list of movies? Well, uh, it- yeah, I mean, it seems weird. It seems like his his career, F. Gary Gray's career arc definitely has ascended. He started at a place with the Italian job. It was the movie that I saw that made me want a Mini Cooper, and that was a dream that I fulfilled. So it really had an effect on me. But watching it as an adult, it's not that great. So I think that's even a little worse than Be Cool. But then after Be Cool, you know, you, you hit movies like the uh, Straight Out of Compton and Fate of the Furious which were legit movies. I'm surprised to hear that, that his career has <laughs> kept on going, especially after uh, this movie we're talking about today. It was based on a book by Elmer Leonard, a screenplay written by a guy named Peter Steinfeld, whose only notable writing credit was that blackjack card counting movie 21 from a few years back. Oh, is that the winner, winner, chicken dinner movie? Oh, yeah, okay. exactly. And uh, I actually remember liking that movie a lot. Yeah, um, me too. With a budget of $53 million, this movie in the U.S. made a little bit of coin, uh, $56 million overall. And when you look at the worldwide total, it brought in $95 mil. Uh, so didn't quite double its budget, but did make some money, which That's surprising. I am shocked. <laughs> well, because this Utterly is Utterly shocked. This is a sequel to Get Shorty. I've never seen Get Shorty, but that movie came out in, what, 1995? So 10 years later, we get a sequel that, I mean, we'll get into it later on in the podcast, but it just drops you in with no explanation. Suddenly, you're just picking up after the events of Get Shorty, and they don't explain anything. They don't help the audience out at all. So uh, I'm, I'm surprised that that many people went to go see this. Yeah, I mean, the, my one of my biggest problems with this movie is it's so self-aware that it's a sequel, but it doesn't take a single step towards trying to explain any of the in-jokes, which I assume are relevant from the first movie. But to a jabroni like us, like they didn't take a single effort to explain anything. No. I mean, for us, for people like us, we're only watching it because The Rock is in it. And I guess that's probably... One of the um, draws of this movie is that they fit so many different actors and actresses in, into it. I remember going to the theater and seeing like uh, one of those big cardboard ads 
stand-up ads for this movie and looking and seeing like everybody it was just a conglomeration of actors um and that's the only thing i knew about this movie going into it is that it had a ton of different people in it but one of the interesting things about this movie is that it is the last uh movie in which dwayne johnson is credited solely as the rock after this it's dwayne the rock johnson wow so this is actually a pretty pivotal moment in the dwayne johnson pantheon uh, of cinema. As much as his character in this movie is longing to be a real life actor, this is kind of the movie that the real Dwayne Johnson sort of steps into that realm himself. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like I said, we'll get into this later on, but I thought that he was one of the shining moments in this movie, his character. Yes, and we will absolutely break down uh, Dwayne Johnson's role in this because he plays a minor but wildly entertaining part in Be Cool. So let's just get into it with a quick plot summary of Be Cool. Having made the transition from gangster to movie producer, Chili Palmer, played by John Travolta, is ready for the next big move. Setting his sights on the music industry, Palmer enters a precarious business that has more than just temperamental musicians. Russian mobsters, rival producers, and hitmen are out to bring him down. From witnessing the murder of his friend, played by James Woods, to romancing a music executive's widow, played by Uma Thurman, it seems as though it might all fall apart, but Chili Palmer has his ways. Now, that's a brief summary of this movie. That's uh, basically Charlie- a setup for this movie. I mean, we're not, I mean, <laughs> conservatively, the next, the next 40 minutes, we're going to be sitting here trying to figure out this incomprehensible movie because it does a lot of things. It tries to be a lot of things, uh, but what it is most is a PG-13 Quentin Tarantino knockoff. Right, I absolutely. I mean, this is this is Pulp Fiction light. It's uh, from the the John Travolta Uman Therma connection to like uh in, like very pointed heated monologues to the kind of the self aware dialogue. It felt like a Tarantino movie, but with none of the Tarantino bite or like comedy. Like this movie wanted to be funny so bad, and it had moments, but I don't think it really succeeded for most most of the time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, Yeah, it really tried the whole Pulp Fiction thing enough to where there is literally, in the second act of this movie, a dance between Uma Thurman and John Travolta. I mean, I wouldn't even call it an homage as much as as it is just a straight ripoff. I also, so let's, I want to talk about John Travolta and Uma Thurman's chemistry in this movie because a major major prevailing plot line is this kind of romance angle. And and look, maybe this makes sense if you've seen the first movie, but in the first two minutes of this film, we watch Uma Thurman's husband get shot and killed. And John Travolta has zero reaction to it. This guy gets gunned down in the street. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's the plastic surgery or what, but he has no facial expression. Oh, okay. You you and I were talking about this before we started recording. He looks rubber in this film, like weird face lines that people don't have. Human beings don't have the angles that his face displays in this movie. Yeah. Well, and to me, just the setup of this movie plot wise is weird because in Get Shorty, you know, he plays a mobster trying to legitimize himself into the movie business. Okay. That makes sense. I I can understand that of a mobster wanting to get out of the game. But this movie, the whole point is that he wants to leave the movie business, completely negating the whole point of the first movie. I don't know. It's 
<sighs> I didn't. So, I just oh, didn't get why he wanted to join the music business because the music business was always going to be super profitable forever, right? <laughs> sure, and, and I imagine that he was doing fine in the movie business, and I also don't understand why it would be so difficult for a successful movie producer to move to music. Like that happens all the time in real life. Why does he have to get involved with like the Russian mob in order to switch over? Right. Well, okay. So let's let's just overarching uh, themes here. Can you explain the actual plot? So Chili Palmer wants to be a producer. He discovers a young talent, but has to take her away from her contract. Guy who manages her contract is Vince Vaughn. And then things spiral out of control from there, right? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. It's it's kind of like of John Travolta rescuing this poorly treated musician and then bringing her to stardom on his own and having to kind of fend off her old manager and old producer. But that only skims the surface. Like that is the that is the plot line, but this movie spends so little time following that specific arc. It spends a lot of time showing us full musical numbers throughout this movie. <laughs> the like, original music in this movie is terrible. It's so bad. And I've never seen something like this in a non-musical movie where they would we would like sit down to watch this the the main singer, the main musician of this movie, Linda Moon. Uh, we would watch her sit at the piano to play a song, but she wouldn't play a snippet. Like as the audience, right. we would yes. watch a four minute song. <laughs> yeah, and usually in movies when you watch a performance, it's like the beginning, the verse, and the chorus, and then you're out. But this, no, you sit there and watch an entire song. And keep in mind, it is a bad one. Oh, it's it's terrible. Like and and they're like it's not even like we're seeing reaction shots of people. It's like watching a music video. And this happens like five times. So this movie is two hours long, and I would say 30 minutes of it is watching people sing. It's like an episode of American Idol. Yes. Oh, my. That's that's exactly. (laughs) You even get uh, Steven Tyler, uh, American Idol judge uh, all-star. that's true. Well, so this movie presumes that Aerosmith is the biggest band in the world. And that Which wasn't is true. Probably in the biggest joke that they could have done. This, yeah, there's Aerosmith was hardly relevant in 2005, except I guess his guest turn on American Idol was like, what, five years later? But yeah, that, that was plenty later, yeah. And don't want to miss a thing. That was in the mid 90s with, wasn't that Armageddon? So, yeah, they had peaked and they were past their peak, but they go so far as to give Uma Thurman an Aerosmith tattoo. Like, trans. Oh, my God. Which they show us like four different times. <laughs> I know. Is this, was this movie funded by Steven Tyler? I would not be surprised if this was a Steven Tyler slash Black Eyed Peas uh, vehicle. You're right. Because, the Black Eyed Peas show up later on. Like, constantly. Like, Andre 3000 plays a main character role in this movie and then and then his whole band shows up which is like what I'm confused by the universe of this film because it it tells us that Aerosmith is real in this universe movie universe Aerosmith is a real band um that is successful and so are the Black Eyed Peas but not Outkast <laughs> Right, but not Outcast. Like, what is going on? And this is when Outcast was coming off Speaker Box Love Below. But I think this movie has a lot more apparent problems than just the storytelling ones. 
Because one of my biggest issues with this movie is that we spend so much time meeting new characters. Like the first 45 minutes of the movie is, oh, we meet this character. Then we meet this character. Ooh, uh, Cedric the Entertainer. Oh, Andre 3000, Vince Vaughn. So many different people. And we're supposed to keep up with what each one is doing. And they don't do it in a way that you can follow, like in uh, Pulp Fiction or something. Once we got all the characters on the screen, the movie stabilized. And I thought it was actually kind of enjoyable. But until you get to that point, it's miserable. Yeah, I tried watching this movie with my girlfriend, Rachel. And she got angry at me about 35 minutes into this movie for for having sat with me that long. And she <laughs> left. She couldn't... She like physically could not finish this movie because you're right up until like an hour into the film there is not a semblance of like a cohesive plot we are just meeting people and the movie expects us to just go along with that until it like gets its bearings an hour in it's i mean it's crazy yeah but one of the characters that we do meet at minute nine is our boy Dwayne Johnson and uh, he plays Vince Vaughn's gay bodyguard. And they remind you he's gay in every single interaction that anyone has with him. Yeah, this whole movie, uh, there's no subtlety. And that is as clear as can be when it comes to Dwayne Johnson's character. He is like doing, he's like snapping his fingers. He sort of has uh, like a gay lisp. Uh, he wears like weird like cowboy pants like they just went with which every that's stereotype a from they boogie could. nights but but why like what was the this movie just did references to reference like i don't know i don't know any why any choice was made in this film yeah i i don't know why this movie was made other than the fact that all these people were available at the same time i <laughs> i don't it know it felt like i don't know if this if you if if this rings true to you but for me it felt like Remember that those series of movies in the early 2000s, like disaster movie, adventure movie, like that were parroting different genres. This to me felt like one of those weird parody movies, but of a Tarantino film. Like it, it felt like almost like movie 43 that came out a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they just get this big name talent with a movie that doesn't like almost like a cash grab, but this wasn't even a cash grab. I don't even know what this was. Well, everyone in this movie came in for a weekend of shooting. Every person did two days of shooting and then they edited it into a movie. <laughs> but one of the scenes I want to talk about right off the bat here is when John Travolta first sees Christina Milan's character, the singer that we're supposed to care about. They are basically lip syncing and he is looking at her like she is music's Jesus Christ, you know? Yeah, oh, he he only has eyes for her uh, like a freaking goddess. <laughs> and she's singing in some dingy club. Uh, her her all the ma- So she's in a trio of girls, and the girls, like, the makeup looks like, you know those videos when, like, a toddler gets into the mom's makeup and it's smeared <laughs> all over? That's what it looks like, and I don't know if that's on purpose. It's just, like... It Like, the comedy wasn't apparent enough, and the drama wasn't subtle enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like, it's clownish. It's so strange. Uh, but anyway, a- another problem I have with this movie is the timeline issue. So, he steals him away from Vince Vaughn, who's managing her, and then they, like, get her to a studio with her own songs and a full backing track, like, the next day. He He's supposed to not know how to be a music producer. How is he getting stuff like this done? I have... So many questions regarding the timeline. There is in this movie only one 
uh, specific night passes that we know of, and that's when John Travolta sleeps over at Uma Thurman's. Uh, everything else conceivably is in a day or or two days, um, and he has somehow become this music producer, and that doesn't even take into account the the final five minutes of this movie when, spoiler, uh, Christina Milan's character wins an MTV Music Award after recording one song ever. <laughs> like, what is the... what? Does this movie take place over six months, but, like, this part of the movie is three days? Like, wh- I don't wh- think so. Because that uh, that one Russian guy has a black eye the whole movie. That's right. So we have, we've hardly touched upon the Russian mob angle here. I would love uh, for you to explain this to me, because I've watched this movie, and I could not tell you what, what their deal is. And this is also the problem, right? Because this, they, they dominate the first half of this movie. I'm going to give you my best shot, though, at the Russian mob plotline. The Russian mob comes into this movie, uh, they kill Chili Palmer's friend, first thing that happens, but they kill him, um, because he has some, actually, hold on, I can't, I don't even think I can explain it, I don't know why they killed him, why See? did they, why did they, <laughs> yeah, so, why did it, they kill to me it seems like everybody owes each other money, so everyone's trying to get the money, so Vince Vaughn is mad because um, John Travolta stole his singer away, Cedric the Entertainer needs his money from Vince Vaughn. But Vince Vaughn is saying, well, that's my my moneymaker right there. And the Russians killed the guy who was married to Uma Thurman in the cold open. So they're somehow involved. Everyone is after everybody. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the movie, besides the Russians, everybody gets on the same page and it's all, it's like a mutually beneficial situation. It Just like getting there is such a grind. Like I said... The conversations that they're having are just like everyday conversations. I, what I think they're trying to do is, once again, a Pulp Fiction thing. You know, the Royale with cheese, you know, the whole conversation in the car, like stuff like that. But it has none of the panache or or it's not interesting at all. Charlie, I have a question. Why is the entire Russian mob operating out of a pawn shop? A single pawn shop? I don't know. And why do... All the police seem to know about it, but it doesn't seem to matter until the very end when they have the baseball bat, which is also weird. Like, why? I just want to know why. Well, they end up planting the baseball bat because it was used in a murder. That's like, that's the Russians come up and at the very end is that they get arrested for having this in their possession after trying to set Chili Palmer up. I... I don't know. First of all, Chili Palmer. Chili Palmer. What a terrible name. That's not a name of a real human being. No, no way. But I but but I think that it, I somehow believe it for John Travolta. Yeah. I maybe. Like, but I don't know what it I believe I actually believed the John Travolta character in this movie. I believed his acting as weird as it was. He to me seemed right at home in the middle of this weirdness. And everyone's calling him a Shylock, which I didn't appreciate, which is like, oh, I didn't like that. super anti-Semitic. Just, just, but, but to be fair, this movie insulted everyone. Oh yeah, so. equal opportunity racism <laughs> going on here. And that's the thing. So we have Vince Vaughn's character acting like a mid-2000s G-unit gangster. I feel like maybe we should play a clip. How? Yeah, there's a clip where Dwayne Johnson is driving Vince Vaughn around Perfect. Uh, and they get into a little bit of a of a scuffle. So uh, we'll play that clip right now. 
You're not wired right. Man, what the hell are you stopping the car here for, man? You crazy? Hey, Man, why are you stopping the car here, man? What are you doing? Get your ass back in the car. I'm gonna kick your ass. Then where's the front of the car, fool? What's up? What? You say it again and I quit. What'd I say? On oh, a faggot thing? A homo? Man, I'm walking. I ain't even tripping, man. I'm... What'd I say? What'd I say, huh? Okay, look, Elliot, I know you frustrated with all this bodyguard shit and whatnot. I smell you, man. I feel your pain. All right, so that just gives you a little bit of a taste of what Vince Vaughn's character is like in this movie. And it is cultural appropriation... To the extreme. I am so uncomfortable listening to it a second time. Um, (laughs) I was so uncomfortable watching it. And I mean, it's like this for two hours of a movie. Like, it's not a bit like he does. He leans so far into this like awful. uh, What was that movie? Um, Malibu's Most Wanted type of a. Of a a role. Like, like, what is why? Why is he doing this? I don't like it. Well, I I didn't get it for the longest time, but one of the things that we get in this scene is that Dwayne Johnson's character is actually pretty principled. You know, uh, he gets called some uh, terrible names and he stands up for himself and he he ends up, you know, chasing and just about beating the hell out of his boss, Vince Vaughn's character. So we, you know, we get an idea that like he's kind of, you know, he's got big dreams and he's not going to debase himself to get there. So it this kind of gives us a good chance. We haven't talked too much about Dwayne Johnson's character. He's not in this movie a whole lot. Um, but I think that we would both agree that the scenes that he is in are almost universally pretty great. Like he is a, a positive influence in what is a pretty difficult movie to get through. Yeah, and essentially, you know, he's not in it a lot, but the plot, especially at the end, really hinges on his actions. You know, at the end of the movie, his whole involvement with Chili Palmer is that Chili Chili said that he would get him an audition for a movie. And so The Rock's character is is really reliant on that, and he, he believes that Chili's going to get it done. And, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, Chili Palmer leaves a message on his answering machine saying that he got him an audition, and Vince Vaughn erases it. So when it comes time at the very end of the movie where The Rock has a gun on Chili Palmer, he finds out that Vince Vaughn deleted the message, and that's when things you know, kind of unravel for Vince Vaughn's character. Right, so he kind of gets a heroic turn uh, at the end of this movie. And I don't know, I found this, this plot line, it's very on the nose, this whole, like, this this doofus who has no business in acting wants to be an actor. Yeah. Especially at this point of time where, you know, he was still going by The Rock officially in his casting. Uh-huh. But I don't know. I I kind of liked that there was this parallel. I, I kind of enjoyed that they were kind of poking fun at his own TV and film ambition. I. Yeah. I don't know. It to me, it made me. It was. It was very endearing. It made me like. If this was the first Dwayne Johnson movie I'd ever seen, I would really appreciate that he could kind of poke fun at himself like this. Yeah, and I didn't think it's funny. I didn't think that he really developed a sense of humor about himself until later on. But going back, this is you know a very early career for The Rock. But yeah, his character Elliot Wilhelm is a muscle man who wants to be an actor, and his signature is raising his eyebrow. In real life at this time, The Rock was a muscle man trying to be an actor who raised his eyebrows a signature thing. <laughs> so it really is on the nose. One thing I don't appreciate are all the gay tropes that they throw in with his character. So we have 
a scene where he's trying on outfits and spinning around in the mirror, snapping, snapping it up. You know, it's real weird. Yeah, they, I mean, they leaned really heavily on these stereotypes. And this is something that, this is one unfortunate kind of recurring note on Dwayne Johnson's career is this sort of weird, like, tinge of homophobia, which I think kind of plagues a lot of his early movies. But that being said, he does play a, a very endearing character. They didn't they didn't make him unlikable via these stereotypes. He's likable despite them. Uh, and I think even when they're having him, you know, he gives a monologue at one point, quoting both sides of a conversation in the movie Bring It On, which I think is probably worthwhile to hear a little bit of it. But even that, I mean, he is he's selling it like he's giving 110% in a pretty like weird scene to do. It's really interesting. He does a monologue for Chili Palmer uh, in Chili's house, and it's actually one of the only genuine laughs I got out of this movie. So I think we should take a listen to that. You guys have to go to nationals. What is this, hush money? We don't need you. Why are you so mean? I'm just trying to be strong for my squad. And I'm trying to make it right. You want to make it right? Then when you go to nationals, bring it. Oh, 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 bring it. Don't worry. I never do. (laughs) I love that. I love it, too, because it's so genuine. I feel like he's really giving, he's being vulnerable, and he does this monologue, and it ends up not being a monologue, but just a scene where he does both parts from the movie Bring It On. And can we talk about the insane music video playing in the background right before he yes, starts talking? Yes, okay. So my notes, so let's describe the music video here. He's staking out Chili Palmer's house, and so he's downstairs waiting to beat him up. And to pass the time, he put in a VHS tape of his own music video where he's singing a country song and dressed up in a country outfit. It's bananas. Like, we are getting close-ups of this, like, (laughs) disco cowboy routine. Like, what? I... Dwayne Johnson's involvement in this movie is so weird, and it's like they dialed it up. I just need to know who thought it was okay to make the audience spend at least five minutes looking at this, like, disco cowboy scene in the background. I'm so glad it did, though, because legit, that's one of my favorite things about this movie. Like I said, it starts off, and I really hated it, but then towards the middle, I actually kind of started to enjoy the scenes and how people interacted with each other. But this was sort of in the second half of the movie, and my notes go, man, this movie is long. And then the next thing was when the music video was playing, and I said, wait, music video... I love this movie now. And then like five minutes later, I wrote another note that said, wait, I'm back to hating it. I forgot what happened. But for a second there, I was like, yup, this is a game changer. It really it really brought a lightness uh, that this movie desperately needed. This is a hard movie for me to evaluate because overall, I struggled with it, but I, I really loved it. Every bit of Dwayne Johnson's involvement. Like, I thought he was great. I loved all of this goofiness. Yeah. Well, one thing I didn't really like is when he's talking about eating chicken, how he likes to stick the whole drumstick in his mouth and suck on the bone. Yeah. Well, you know, they're going for another 
just another to, it's ga- like another hilarious an, gay joke. But uh, and this, it's the thing though is he, I gotta say he delivers it. He gives. Oh sure. <laughs> he really like leaned into it. This he doesn't shy away from a single piece of this character. Well, it's um, so funny that we get this where he plays a really sympathetic gay man, and then you fast forward to Get Smart, where the grossest thing in the world to him is being kissed by another man. So, real weird. It seemed like they even took a step back. Yeah, exactly. One last note I have about the monologue that he gives is, so Chili Palmer's reaction is, okay, that's not bad, but why don't you do a man monologue? That's his best advice? Yeah, and that... that he, and he's he supposed like, to be a, a, man a movie producer? Yeah. Right. He sings like... He says something like, sing man... Like, sing music for men. Something like that. Like... And also Chili for that shows to be... no Chili shows no skills throughout this entire movie at all except like an overwhelming lack of empathy. Right, that's true. He sees his friend get gunned down, then he tries to like bone Uma Thurman who just lost her husband, who mind you was one of his friends. So, yeah, no I like I said I don't know if it's plastic surgery, but there's like no emotion, no reaction to anything. She, though, was wearing a T-shirt that said Widow on it from, like, the entire <laughs> movie. And during the monologue scene, she's wearing one that says Morning with a U. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all really on the nose. One of my favorite scenes, though, is when they go to the basketball game, Chili Palmer and Uma's character. And I made a, a running list of all of the things that made this movie so dated. And it had a lot to do with that basketball scene. So when they walk in... It's supposed to be like a romantic scene, and they're playing Sixpence, None the Richer. Kiss me. Love it. Love <laughs> it. Uh, at one point, Chili Palmer goes, I didn't take you for a Black Eyed Peas fan. Uh, you see multiple women wearing juicy velour pants. Uh, Steven Tyler without a feather in his hair, because I feel like he's been in that phase of his life for the last 15 years. <laughs> uh, oh, Kobe Bryant's wearing the number eight. Um, yep. At one point, Harvey Keitel's character tells the girl group, hey, if you stay together, you're going to be making that Spice Girl kind of cash. Okay. We have the the like the Nokia or the T-Mobile sidekick text phone. With that, the by the way, screen. the sidekick gets like numerous shout outs in this movie. <laughs> I know. Uh, well, Dwayne Johnson's the one that has it. And you know, gay people, they be texting. Am I right? <laughs> okay, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, and then also the last thing I said was Seth Green in a movie is very dated. Right. This was this could this exists like in the same universe as Austin Powers. Like this entire cast and and the way people speak to each other. It's very of a certain time. And one thing about this movie is it did not see Napster or streaming on the internet coming at all. Right. They were so caught up in this world of like uh, of like physical music production, like. It it's it totally it's completely dated in a world where iTunes and Napster uh, and LimeWire even like came yeah. to popularity like immediately following this film. Uh, we're, yeah, where the only success, the only path to success in music is to sell a bunch of CDs and make music videos. Uh, the model has definitely changed quite a bit. There's one thing I want to bring up that just kind of troubled me in this film. We have Robert Pastorelli is playing a hitman named Joe Loop, which is a character I believe factors in more in the first movie. 
Um, but we get just a little bit of him in this. Two things that are weird about it. One, I did not care for the way he ate food in this movie. Him um, and Andre 3000 are both eating food and making a bunch of mouth noises. And I ugh. really didn't appreciate it. It was like grossing me out. I don't need to ever see someone eat egg salad on camera. <laughs> and talk while they ugh. do it. It really upset me. Um, the other just strange kind of, I don't know, it it kind of, I don't know, it, it's unsettling to me, is that Robert Pastorelli, uh, so his character, Joe Loop, is killed halfway through this movie um, by Vince Vaughn. Kind of, he's bludgeoned to death with a baseball bat. During this movie's production, the actual Robert Pastorelli died. And it's just odd to me that, like, I don't know, it, it's just something about them, like, keeping, like, a very violent... Both we see Robert Pastorelli choking and then we watch him get bludgeoned. Like it's a very. It's gratuitous too. And they don't show you anything because it's PG-13, which they make a big note about in the first part of this movie about PG-13 movies being able to only being able to use the F word once and they get it out of the way real soon. But other than that, it's like very obvious. Like it's violent, but it doesn't show you anything. And it's gratuitous violence, especially in that scene where Vince Vaughn keeps beating a dead body over and over with this baseball bat. And yeah, it's real weird, especially considering that Robert Pastorelli died. I mean, we just did Fast and Furious 7, which had a an almost identical scenario. Um, and, you know, we see them handle the death of Paul Walker with so much more tact. And this movie is not a movie I would ca- I would call tactful in any way, but it still was weird. It was weird to watch this man who died in real life get like like very graphically killed in a movie. I don't know. It freaked me out. I wasn't surprised because this movie was very untasteful in every sense of the word, but still was weird. I don't know. Yeah. Going back to Dwayne Johnson, though, we talk a lot about how Dwayne Johnson's hair kind of weirds us out. What did you think about his hair in this? He's got an afro, and you know what? I think it kind of fit him. I enjoyed the Dwayne Johnson afro, but I think the distinction, um, because as you, you're, you're absolutely right, when we see movies like The Game Plan or The Tooth Fairy where he has sort of his just sort of short hair, there's something weird about it. But I think that this falls into like the Hercules character type of movie where like I can deal with fake Dwayne Johnson hair, I think. I think that like wigs work for me. But his yeah, like actual very hair, obvious wigs look more real than his actual hair. Yeah, his real hair looks drawn on, but I buy one hundred percent buy like this like seventies afro he's got going on. Well, and then at the end of the movie he's got straight up cornrows. yep (laughs) which okay so that kind of goes back to what i think is it this movie attempts to make a very interesting point towards the very end of the movie so the whole movie like i said all the cultural appropriation especially by characters like vince vaughn is very jarring and weird but then most of the way through the movie you have cedric the entertainer give this big long speech about how White people have been taking advantage of the contributions that black people have made to America and the culture, and and they've been appropriating it without giving any due credit. It's a relatively powerful speech that honestly should be in a completely different movie, considering the the tone uh, of the the previous minutes. But then the movie kind of started to make sense to me a little bit more. Like, oh, okay, we were supposed to think that. Vince Vaughn's character was like tasteless and all that. But then five minutes later, 
this same music crew puts on a on a music video that is completely like Asian inspired without a single Asian person in sight. Right. It it ah uh, it um, they go from a monologue that would have fit right in and like do the right thing to immediately appropriating Asian culture <laughs> right. like as over the top as is humanly possible. And maybe uh, that's maybe that's a joke too, but it, like I just I don't think it was. There's no way this movie like it wasn't could have been operating that at that smart. level, yeah. No, like there's no it was just in joke after in joke after in joke. What did you think about how many times they said the title of this movie? Oh jeez. Oh jeez. <laughs> Anytime anyone pulled out a gun, it was, "Hey, be cool. Be, be cool. cool, man. Hey, be, be cool." It's almost like they looked right into the middle of the camera and was like, "Be cool." <laughs> Get it? Well, that's I mean, I, I again just I'm just not surprised. This movie did not care for subtlety. It it just was going to do what it I think that they thought it was funny. I don't know. I I think they thought they were being hilarious. Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. Well, it, I think it's telling that the director of Get Shorty didn't want to return for this movie. And so you're right, it might have just been a cash grab. Because from everything I've heard and the reviews I've read, Get Shorty's a great movie. And, right. you know, people must like the Chili Palmer character and wanted to see the further adventures. I don't know. And the final thing I'll say about this movie is a parallel that obviously wasn't intentional, but at one point we see Elliot Wilhelm, Dwayne Johnson's character's apartment. Oh, yes. And did you think... It looked exactly like the Baywatch apartment. It's okay. Oh my God. I'm so (laughs) glad that you brought this up. The layout is, it's like the same set. Yeah. Yeah. Wicker furniture, uh, like floral curtains. Uh, It basically looks like a, like a beach shack uh, just in the middle of Los Angeles. The only difference I I I could even think of was that there was like 10 times the amount of Hello Kitty merchandise in this apartment. (laughs) Well, and you get a glimpse of the headshots that Elliot Wilhelm has, but you only see one of them, and he's wearing, like, one of those propeller hats, and he's, like, looking off into the distance. (laughs) It's beautiful. I wanted to see the rest of them. That's a prop I need to get my hands on. (laughs) Well, you know, it's like, uh, I'm trying to think, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Titus does a similar thing in a photo booth where he has, like nine different characters on one piece of paper that he can do. And this is a similar thing, but you only see pieces, you know, uh, stacks of paper are stacked on top of it, but a corner of it sticking out. You just see that propeller hat picture. So I want to see what else is on there. Yeah. Give me a sequel. That's just the, the story of Elliot Wilhelm becoming an actor. Well, yeah, that's like one of the final shots that we see in this movie is that you see him on a billboard with who, like Catherine Zeta Jones. Right. So yes, I would definitely see that movie. Yeah, he made it. Well, he's an actor that's acting in big budget movies, but he's also appearing at the MTV Music Video Awards dancing. Look, it was just a precursor to Dwayne Johnson's actual career arc. I know. Well, that's one thing we talk about is that we think he kind of wants to be a singer and we got to see him sing in this movie. Yep. Not, and it wasn't bad. Wasn't bad, Dwayne boy. No, I'm going to have to get my hands on that full music video. So we had our thoughts and feelings on this movie, but of course, uh, it's time to test Be Cool against our patented Franchise Viagra test. And Charlie, how does that test work? Franchise Viagra. Uh, We have three tenets of the Franchise Viagra test, and those are hard work, charisma, and physique. And we use those to determine the age-old question, would we see a sequel to this movie? 
And oftentimes, you know, we do this with movies that Dwayne Johnson is featured in a lot more. This is a little bit of a tougher task for us. Um, but first up, hard work. I thought he was working hard. Like I said, he was the highlight of this movie for me. And when it comes to Dwayne Johnson's acting, especially in these earlier movies, that's pretty rare. So I think he passes that. Charisma. Uh, yeah. You know, even though he's working against, you know, the stigma of being homosexual in this movie, which is apparently in, in this universe looked down on, he overcomes that to be the most likable character in the movie. So I think it works there. Physique. Uh, excellent. We see the uh, left shoulder tattoo of his uh, pretty prominent, especially at the end where he's super sweaty and dancing on stage. So I'm kind of shocked to say this, but he passes. Yeah, it, it's hard to believe, but he crushed this movie. But it was a difficult movie overall. Like if I do kind of want a sequel, but like we said, I want yeah. a, I want an Elliot want Wilhelm sequel, sequel. And honestly, I think that's okay. So this is going to be, I think, really the first movie we've ever done where we didn't like it very much, but we do want to see that sequel. And he does pass a franchise Viagra test. So kind of a weird situation. Uh, but I think we should move on to ranking this movie. Absolutely. Uh, I can give you mine off the bat here. I didn't have too much difficulty trying to slot this into my rankings. Uh, for me, it's going to end up as my num- my new number 12. And that's going to go below Get Smart, but right above Snitch. Because you know what? I would watch this movie again. If only to capture the weirdness uh, and, and try and figure out things I missed. And I, I do have to admit... I think there might be something to to seeing Get Shorty and then watching this movie again. And yeah. Th- oh, definitely. I think that and- there might be more to it than we than we got uh, if we had seen that first movie. But I have to say, I I don't know. It wasn't good. I will. I did not enjoy this movie, uh, but I did like it more than some of the stinkers he's put out. So I don't know. This gets my new number twelve. Okay, I think I'm going to slot it just a little bit higher, but not much. I'm going to put this right after Gridiron Gang and before it gets smart in my number 11 position. Um, I, I, I think you made a lot of good points. I think if we watched Get Shorty and then CB Cool, a lot of our questions would have been answered. That was a problem with me watching this movie is that I was, I was questioning so much of it. It took me about 45 minutes to get my feet under me, and then I started to kind of enjoy it. So, you know, not at the top of the list, but definitely it wasn't terrible like a lot of the movies at the bottom of our list. So, yeah, number 11 seems right. So, Rock Talk Nation, you heard our thoughts on Be Cool. We want to hear yours. That means reaching out to us on one of our social media platforms. That includes Facebook uh, at Facebook.com slash Rock Talk Pod. That includes Twitter, Twitter.com at Rock Talk Pod. And that includes Instagram. Our handle is also just at Rock Talk Pod. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support of the show. Uh, You have made us the number one rated, reviewed, listened to, streamed, and downloaded. And I'll just throw in favorited and retweeted and liked, because I do it every week. Uh, The number one Dwayne Johnson theme podcast on the internet, and that's because of you. So thank you, and thank you for reaching out. And please, please, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It's the number one way that you can support Rock Talk and jabronis like us. Join us next week for a brand new mini episode. And if you haven't listened to last week's, Jordan and I, uh, you get to learn a little bit more about us as we fill out our application to take part in the Titan Games. Join us next week, jabronis. (laughs) 